Um, my name's Scott, for those who don't know me. Um, part of the teaching team here. I think it's sounding okay, is it? Or, yeah, good. Um, so we're nearly finishing our kind of summer series of traveling companions, following Jesus and his disciples as they move from Galilee, his hometown, to Jerusalem. And I, I think Rob will be speaking next week, and then we'll be shifting into some other, a, a new series to, to yet to be revealed. <laughs> um, so let's um, pray, and then we'll, we'll read the scripture for today. Thank you, Jesus, that you are with us, just like that couple that walked from Jerusalem to Emmaus, you were with them and they didn't notice. But as you opened the scriptures to them, their hearts burned within them and you revealed yourself to them. And I pray by your spirit you do that with us again today, that as we journey with you through scripture, that your Holy Spirit will, will, will burn our hearts and speak to us afresh today. Amen. So, we pick up the passage in Luke chapter 14, um, and I think the, the words will be behind me as well. So, let's read this. Now, a large crowd were traveling with Jesus, and he turned and he said to the crowd, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation is not able to finish, all who will see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king going out to wage a war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation, asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. So, a lot of the titles in, in Scripture will often have this heading as the, you know, the cost of being a disciple or the cost of following Jesus. And, you know, in some ways, you know, it says here he's speaking to the crowd, and he says, basically, if you want to follow me, you've got to hate your family, You've got to deny yourself by carrying a, a sort of torture-killing device called the cross and to give up everything you own to be my disciple. So I'd say after that, potentially the crowd would have reduced a bit, I think. And, and I was sort of spending time in this scripture. I think there's a kind of question that is so important for us to ask ourselves, which I'll spend a good bit of time thinking about this, that this is the cost of following the cost of discipleship. You know, um, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an amazing pastor who was a martyr in Nazi Germany for following Jesus, and he wrote a book, The Cost of Discipleship. But often we need to remember ourselves that also there's the cost of non-discipleship. There's a benefit to following Jesus. And sometimes I don't want to, I think, why would anyone want to be a disciple of Jesus if this is the cost? And in a way, I want, to, I want to spend a bit of time on that question. It's the kind of question behind this passage. Because Jesus is really saying, look, guys, if you really want to follow me, it's going to cost everything. And in some ways, that's fair enough, but we really want to know, what, what, what are we getting out of this cost? What's the value of this? What's the opportunity? Why would anyone want to be a disciple of Jesus? Jesus told another parable in Matthew. He says, the kingdom of God is like 
treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered it up. But then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. I think for some of us um, who've been sort of following Jesus or on the crowd, just sort of tipping away every so often following Jesus, or maybe we don't really know Jesus, but I think the big problem for disciples of Jesus is that we take him for granted. I don't think we've treasured him as this man in the field did. He saw this treasure and he gave up everything in his joy. Cherish is the one word for treasure, to hold dear, to place great value on, to set great store on, to adore, to love dearly, to be devoted, to idolize, to worship, to think very greatly, to appreciate, to persevere and keep safe. These are all words that what it means to treasure somebody. In Colossians, Paul says, in Christ, in Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in this passage, Jesus is saying, you know, yeah, you know if you want to follow me, but he, he also says there's great treasure in following me. He says, another invitation, he says, you know, come to me, be my disciple, all who are weary and burdened, and he promises rest. Take my yoke, which is a, a rabbi sort of, uh, sort of language to say, take my teaching, be my disciple, follow me, take my yoke upon me, like two oxen, we're, we're going to connect together and we're going to have this yoke as we plow the field together. Learn from me as, your, as, as a student, because I'm gentle and humble in heart. That's my way of teaching. And you will find rest for your souls. One of the things, there is so many, this, as Paul wrote in Colossians, in Jesus are hidden all these treasures of knowledge. And all of us will, on a journey of discipleship, will find different treasures for us as we go along. One of the deep, deep treasures that I found following Jesus is this idea of deep rest, what I call soul rest. It's the idea of no, need, no longer needing to prove myself to myself, to God, to other people. It's a deep rest. And Jesus had this the start of his ministry when he experienced the deep rest of the Father saying, before he's done anything special, you are my son, or to everyone, you are my daughter. I love you. I'm pleased with you. And out of that, then Jesus got that deep rest. And he's saying, look, come with me, follow me, and I will give you this deep rest, this treasure. You know, even preparing this talk, coming up here, sometimes I don't have that deep rest. Will this sermon be good enough? What will people think of me? Will God be happy with this sermon? Will Zoe be happy with the sermon? Well, that's, that's, that's a tough one sometimes, my wife. But when we work out of that deep rest that Jesus says, that is such a good treasure to have and to experience. That great historical true moment of Christ on the cross and rising from the dead had cosmic, had historical, had social, had theological consequences, but it also had great personal consequences if we step into that. The cross sort of says that that deep rest, that there's no more repression of my brokenness. I oh, know I'm fine. No, no, we're not fine. But no more depression, dwelling in those brokenness. The cross brings great freedom. And that experience of that unconditional love of the triune God is just unbelievable. And Jesus is the one that will lead you through that if you follow him. I remember one time, I think it was in my early 20s, just I think, randomly in a cinema, and it just came to me, the voice, I think, in my head, but I really had that extra sort of voice of 
strength which I've figured out along the way of, of the Spirit just saying, I like you as well as I love you. And I was like, wow, I like you. I felt his ple- pleasure at that time. Or another time when I think, yeah, I was out in Greystones and I was just sitting on the bench and seeing the waves come across the rocks. And I was like, each one of those rocks is like your sin and your brokenness. And each one of those is a wave of my grace. Grace, grace, grace. You know, it's disciples who are the ones that burn grace more than anyone else. We burn grace like jumbo jets burn fuel. We take it every day. Grace, 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 grace. But another kind of sort of image I had, I think the Spirit gave to me, was when I realized my brokenness or my sin or I messed up, I had this image of the Father rubbing his hands and saying, great, another opportunity to forgive Scott, another opportunity to forgive Scott. So this is what I'm talking about, deep personal questions. There is so much treasure, so much wisdom, so much in following Jesus. And Dallas Willard, who's an amazing writer, who's taught me so much about what it means to follow Jesus, said this, you know, why would anyone want to be a disciple of Jesus? Because he's the most important thing in human life. And being his apprentice or his disciple as the greatest opportunity any human being ever has. And I love that word apprentice as well. It's a real practical, we're apprentices of Jesus. I think disciple just seems a bit religious or something, I don't know, but apprentice is great. So why then is being a disciple of Jesus so costly? I suppose it's a kind of obvious thing in one way. In order to have the ultimate, one must let one must let go of the good. I don't know if you guys, as as I get older, the choices in life are less about good and bad, but more about the great and the good, you know, letting go of something for the better, and that's always very tricky. The important versus the ultimate. And Jesus sort of talks three things that many, the people in his culture and us today would have seen these are good things, and they are good things, but the risk is that they could become God things. Family, the word hate, I read seven, I think, commentaries on this passage, and nearly all the scholars say the word hate is less of a primary emotional quality, but more it's a sense of a disavowal of primary allegiance. It's a, it's a relative type of word. It's a kind of disconnect. So don't have your family, your tribe, your kin as the primary allegiance. Have me as your primary allegiance. And I think for some of us, it can be our family of origin. A lot of us, it's our culture, the people we surround ourselves with, our tribe. What do they think of me? How do I make decisions? They, and we end up becoming those things are so important where God says, you know, it's, it's not good for man and woman, for human beings to be alone. We need to side there. It's a good thing to interact. And to, but when that peer group, when that family group takes over and becomes the ultimate, then we don't get that deep rest that Jesus says. It kind of makes sense. The next thing as well as family is the self we're called in this day and age to work on our self-esteem, to try and self-improve, to try to self-attain, to try to self-actualize. And this will ultimately lead to that life that we want. But really, it actually, by putting self first, it will lead to a sense of loneliness. Trying to promote ourselves all the time it doesn't allow us to be vulnerable, and vulnerability is one of the most important aspects to build intimacy. You see, as a quote here, it says, what is discipleship? You know, it's, it's following Jesus not on some religious quest to become bigger, better, or faster, but to become more trusting of his mercy toward our total inability to be these things. I think, like, it's definitely a draw, and again, these are good things to be more 
independent to a certain level, to be more responsible, this draw to be a self-made man or a self-made woman, if that's our ultimate, we can't follow Jesus. I realize more and more that Jesus is not for winners, he's for losers. He's, but if we have this drive to, 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 to create something so strong in us, we'll lack that vulnerability said, and we'll lack that deep ministry that's from God. And then possessions, you know, in the last verse, you know, you know, Paul talks about the idea that we live and move and have our being in God. I think we live in a consumer society that we move and live and have our being in, in stuff and consumerism. And it's so hard to distinguish what life would be like without a life of possessions. And again, there's something okay with that, something good with that. But if we make it our ultimate, it'll enslave us, it'll desensitize us. And again, it won't be our ultimate thing. I use this quote a few sermons ago, maybe you shouldn't use the same quote again, but I think it kind of hits, it's, it, hits it again by Viktor Frankl, who um, I, I spoke about a while ago as well, who wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning, who was a kind of psychoanalyst in, during World War II, and he was a Jew, and he went into a concentration camp, and he wrote this book based on his experiences, and he said this, I think it comes up there, yeah, thanks, Christina. Don't aim at success, or what Jesus would say, pleasing family, pleasing other people, possessions. Don't aim at that. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. For success, like happiness, all these good things cannot be pursued. It must ensue, and it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. And he wasn't necessarily talking about Jesus there, but I think this is what Jesus is getting at. You know, seek first the kingdom. All these things will be added to you, but make this the ultimate thing. The other things will let you down. It'll draw you away. Family, for the Jewish people, was a sense that that would save them, their king, their identity, their status, their self-achievement, their possessions. Those things won't save us, Jesus is saying. They won't heal us, but follow me and you will. So what does a disciple of Jesus look like? I suppose a question, I think it's the next question, yeah, like, because a disciple effectively is a student or apprentice, I was wondering, what are good qualities a student should have? Don't know, does anyone have any ideas? What, if you were, any teachers here, what would you want from a student? Teachable, yeah, 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 that's true. A good listener, yeah, all these things. Peter, for me, in the Bible is a great example, he was a disciple of Jesus. I think he did these two things really well, which are good signs of, of, I think, a student. The first is that he learned to fail well and to see well. So, I'm currently studying um, family therapy, but it's a very kind of uh, sort of practical uh, study. So I'm in a room with a family, and I'm being recorded, and my supervisor's in the room watching me, as well as my other students. It's pretty nerve-wracking, pretty vulnerable. Um, but I've learned the things, the, the mistakes I've made, hopefully not too damaging for the families, but um, I've noticed that if I'm willing to fail well, which is basically taking risks, taking steps, being vulnerable, is great, great learning in that. The courage to do it, the humility to go, oh yeah, um, I made a mistake there, the teachability, the willingness to, to listen. Because you see, following Jesus is not perfection, it's persevering. It's not about passing a religious or moral test, but it's more like failing them in some ways. The question is, where do you go when you fail? Where do you go when we mess up? 
One of the big distinctions, I think, between Peter, a disciple of Jesus, and Judas is that they both denied Christ. They both messed up. But Peter, you know, he just, even though he kind of stepped away, he, 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 he looked for Christ. He, he looked for Jesus. He, he was willing to return. You see, Peter, like, he was the one that stepped out of the boat and failed miserably through his, through his fear. He was the one that promised that he would never forsake Jesus, and we know he denied him three times. But he came back. I think, like, in my work, in my fa- family, in my inadequacies, I think being a disciple isn't perfection. It's about clinging to Jesus in those things, knowing that, yeah, you, 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 you're there for me. So my confidence is not me faithfully following Jesus all the time, but in my returning, what I call re-following. I think as a disciple, I think it's a really helpful thing that I am a re-follower of Jesus. Every day, I just used to re-follow Jesus every day. The other thing for a disciple is, is, is not just to fail well, but to see well. Um, Jared Wilson wrote a book, I think, called The Imperfection, The Imperfect Disciple or something like that. He wrote this about seeing well, which is, he used the word beholding. To behold something is to hold something in our vision, to let the weight of it rest on our mind and heart. So to see, it's more than seeing something, it's to let it, the weight of it, what you see, rest on your mind and your heart. It's holding something in the vision. You know, and, and I think that Peter so well, so often, you know, I think it's in, yeah, John 6 when, Jesus is saying some outlandish things about eating his body and his bread and drinking his blood, and loads, it says loads of disciples left him at that stage. And he says to, to Peter, well, this is an opportunity for you. Do you want to leave me too? You're very offended here. And Peter goes, well, who else do we have to go? Only you have these words of life. Only you, you know, you, only you have the word of life, and only, you know, you are the Holy One, the Son of God. Peter was able to see these things. He was able to behold these things. I think a lot of discipleship sometimes is about being more like Jesus, getting our quiet times in, getting to church, serving, ministry, which are all good things. But I think the thing before that, we need a vision. A disciple is someone that spends the time beholding the treasure, the beauty of Christ. To giving it time to let it rest on our minds and our hearts. I think it was Socrates, but I don't know it was him. But he's, I remember hearing this phrase saying, beware of the barrenness of a busy life. Beware of the barrenness of a busy life. We need to take, uh, disciples are people who take their time to behold, to really just spend time in Scripture, spend time in the quiet of beholding Jesus with our minds and with our hearts. With our minds is to think like, let's compare Jesus to all the other great men in, in, you know, and, and go after that if you need to, or spend time with your heart with Jesus. And Peter, when he was denying Jesus those times, it said it was over a coal fire. And then he went, left when he realized that the third time he denied this person he was following. When he put maybe the fear of man, the fear of what other people think, the fear of himself, would I get in trouble? He really wasn't following Jesus in those moments. And he went away and wept bitterly. And then kind of he stopped following Jesus a little bit. He, he went back to his old ways of fishing. And then they're fishing, and then there's this man on the side telling them how to fish. And they're like, oh, what? we've been fishing all night. What do you know? And then they catch loads of fish. And it was Peter who said, 
Look, it's Jesus. It was Peter got out of the boat, ran through the water, didn't walk in the water this time, ran through the water. And he sits down with, with Jesus and he's cooking a little fire. They say smell is one of the great memories. And he, I wonder, those few days before, when he was at that fire, a little girl, he was so afraid of what the little girl would say, he, he denied Jesus. And in that fire again and smelling the coals on the beach, oh, it must have been felt so tough for Peter. And then Jesus saying, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than what people think of you, about your reputation? Do you not talk about your faith to people because you're afraid of your reputation? People might judge you a certain way. Are you so worried and fearful of the future that you don't trust me, Jesus, the God who holds the whole world together? Do you love me more? Do you love me more than these things? At the very end, Jesus sort of says this beautiful invitation. It's to say to Peter, follow me, follow me. And for a disciple, I really do, when I was praying this, it's just as a reminder for us all that it's just to re-follow Jesus. We can re-follow him day by day. We mess up, and he just calls us every day. His mercies are new every morning just to follow Jesus each day. And then Peter goes on, and he writes a letter called One Peter, and he says this, and I'll invite the, the band to come back up now. Thanks. He says, to this church, and I think it's to us, you know, he saw, Peter saw Jesus physically, but he says, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see Jesus now, you believe in him and are filled with an expressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This healing of your souls, integrating of our souls, that deep rest, what it means to follow Jesus. And I think a life of a disciple is just daily finding ways of how we can let go of other things that aren't, they're good things, but they may be becoming ultimate things. You know, Peter talks, I think, in his second letter, great and glorious promises that he has. He's called us into, the, into these great promises, into a life following Jesus of deep rest, of words of life. So let's pray, and then we'll worship. Father, I pray we would hear your voice again tonight. Jesus, that you're just saying, come follow me again. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy-bathed.